Hello, and welcome to the Scene to Song Season 2 Finale. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and this week I brought back seven of our Season 2 guests to talk about some of the topics we discussed this year and answer some questions from our listeners. I hope you've enjoyed the season, and if you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast as well as give us a rating and a review, which will help this podcast find even more listeners who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. Hi, welcome to the season finale episode. I'm super excited to have seven of our season two guests here uh, today to talk about a lot of different uh, a lot of different things. So first, we'll just introduce everybody. Um, Mark Falconer. I, I did the episode about Jensen Schmidt musicals. Hi, I'm Annika Chapin. I did the episode on assassins. Hi, I'm James Ballard. I did the episode on orchestration. I'm Jessica Flightman, and I did the episode on My Fair Lady. I'm John Berderver. I did the political musicals episode. I'm Marcus Scott. I did the episode on coming-of-age stories and rock musicals. I'm Beth Ann Cohen. I did the episode on representation... The Jew episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, representations of Judaism in in musicals, I think it was... I think it was called. Sure. Okay, great. So we're going to get started, as we usually do, with a get-to-know-our-guest intro question. And I started this one on the uh, previous episode we did. Um, it's actually based on like a Facebook discussion I had like four years ago, where I introduced this question on Facebook, and it got a lot of interesting responses. So I thought I'd add it to the rotation, and since... Uh, these guys didn't get a chance to answer it. We're going to pose it to them um, today. So the question is, what is a moment in a musical that you think gets to a complex emotional state that you didn't think it was possible to get to or that you didn't imagine a musical was capable of getting you to uh, that emotional state? Um, So does anyone want to start? I can go first. Um, so I actually kind of am upset with my answer because I wish that I weren't giving the composer um, more airtime. But uh, I have to say The Joy You Feel from The Light in the Piazza. Um, I'm mad at Adam Gettle for being a big Trump supporter. That's why I don't want to say him. But I, the first time I saw that show, it, uh, I saw it in tryouts in Chicago. And Kelly O'Hara was playing um, the sister-in-law who sings The Joy You Feel. And I still really vividly remember watching her do that number. And it starts out as a very traditional kind of AABA structured musical theater song. And then it's like she can't contain her emotions. And as her emotions well up in her, the song explodes and becomes this uh, almost jagged, like, chromatic um just spewing of her anger and and self-loathing in a way for being in love with this man who so clearly is always cheating on her and but she can't it's it's such an interesting way that to look at a situation which has been done many times in lots of different stories um and i remember it was like one of those moments where you lean forward in your chair and like the hair and that back of your neck stands up on end and i was like this is brilliant 
All right. Well, I have the very obvious and expected answer for me to give. Mm -hmm. uh, then I have the one that I think the show doesn't intend. And then I have one that's actually more of a character. So I'll, the very obvious one is assassins because part of what I love about assassins is because I think when you get to that scene where Lee Harvey Oswald is talking to Booth and Booth makes that point to him that even though he's an uneducated, you know, guy who's had this sort of life, he knows who, who John Wilkes Booth is and the idea that he could be famous instead of being loved and special, um, I think just drops the bottom out of your stomach because you realize that he's not wrong. And that's such a terrifying place to be to suddenly understand why, as hateful as it is, there's a logical reason that it makes sense for him to do this heinous act. Um, so that's the one that jumped to mind. The one that I don't think the show intended is I'll always, I'll never forget the end of Lestat, which I don't know if anyone <laughs> got to see, where uh, the character of Lestat is uh, dying in essence, is like, I, I don't know, I can't even remember, he, but he's gonna like be burned up by the sun or something. And I remember thinking, I honestly don't know if the show wants me to, to want him to live or not. <laughs> I could not figure out whether we're supposed to be like, yes, end your suffering, you've lived this amazing life, or to be like, no, live on, Lestat. <laughs> I was just sitting there going, hmm, I don't know if this is what you intended. Either I still am not totally sure. Um, and the one that's not quite the right, sorry for giving three answers in one, but um, the one that I also thought of immediately with Assassins, which is actually a little bit more of a performance and or character than a moment is, um, the MC in the Sam Mendes cabaret, mm. and specifically Alan Cumming playing him, because I remember, which is, I, I think to this day, my favorite performance uh, on a stage, because you were disgusted by him, and you were attracted to him, and you were disgusted that you were attracted to him, and it was just such, a, I remember having such a weird complex, like he was so charming, and then you know, the things he would do when he said, you know, and uh, if you could see this from my, you were like, it was such a weird relationship to have with this person who was kind of your narrator that I'll just never forget feeling all of those things about this character who represents so much in that show. It was just the perfect encapsulation of that. So one that I remember specifically is about maybe three quarters or so of the way through Fun Home, the moment before Telephone Wire, where it's, Bruce and middle Allison having this conversation and adult Allison is there up until this point. She's been a framing device. She's sitting in a chair. You, you don't even register her as an audience member, but she's just there as she has been the whole show. And he says, do you want to go for a drive? And middle Allison says yes. And he turns to adult Allison oh. and hands her the keys and says, yeah. let's go. Moment. I felt like my breath leave my body at that moment. Um, she, again, she's existed as a framing device and now she is she's existing in the world of the show and yet also outside of it at the same time it was this fascinating moment of just how it altered my perception of the the passage of time and the perception of time of you know she is existing all of these years in the future and yet she is here now in this room on this car ride with him and it was just you know, the, the question says, a complex emotional state you didn't think was possible. I don't know what emotion to describe it as. I was just spellbound. Yeah. It's incredible. Similarly, a moment that really impacted me in a musical is also about when kind of the established rules of the world change suddenly in a very powerful way. Mm. I mean, I had that ex experience um, at the very end of Next to Normal um, when Diana leaves and for the first time the son talks to the husband. 
Um, and for the entire show, for the entire show, she's the only one who can speak to the dead son, and the dead son's the only one who speaks to her. But and the dad just kind of turns to him and says, "Why didn't you go with her?" You know. And I just thought it was so eloquent and so simple because it was just so much better than if there were an entire song of him being like, "I'm so sad about my son, but I can't deal with it because I am dealing with my wife." And blah blah blah. Um, I'm sure the song would have been written better than what I just said, but. Um, you know, it just, it would have been overwritten at that point. And it's not even a long moment. It's not even a full song, but just that moment of kind of changing the rules of the world to show his emotional state, it, it, it took my breath away. Like other people have been saying about other moments, I was just like, oh my God, he also is hurting in a way that he hasn't been able to address. And just that moment, I was like, I get it. I get it, writers. Um, and I just, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I didn't want to talk about ambivalence as because ambivalence is drama. I mean, whether it's a musical or Shakespeare or Tennessee Williams. And it's been around in musicals for a long time from, you know, Accustomed to Her Face to I Loved You Once in Silence to What's the Use of Wondering. But Sondheim does it so succinctly in company with Sorry Grateful. It's just kind of startling. You know, you're always sorry, you're always grateful, you're always wondering what might have been, then she walks in, or I'm, I'm assuming it'll be and he walks in in this new production. Um, it just, it's startling to to face that head on and in 1972 in a commercial musical I was dreading this <laughs> um, because I just a barrage of different musicals came to mind um, and so I'm probably gonna I'm probably gonna take like two or three different examples and just kind of ad lib but the first one that comes to mind was an experience I had uh, watching Sweet Charity um, at uh, at not the roundabout at the roundabout, at, a, at, a, at a roundabout, excuse me, a signature with a Sutton Foster. Uh-huh. Um, and um, it was bizarre for me because I was like, why am I crying? It's Sutton Foster. I'm not supposed to be crying. Sutton Foster doesn't invoke emotions for me. I think she's like the ultimate showgirl. And this is the first time where it was the last number. Um, and, you know, Sweet Shared is one of my favorite musicals. But, like, the what, what I loved so much about it is that um, she's just been uh, discarded, abandoned. Here she is. She's singing the last number, and um, this is where am I going? Where am I going? Okay, yeah. And I look over, and I remember I was sitting there. I was uh, with my ex at the time, and I'm looking over, and this woman, she's an editor for Vogue, and she's sitting there the whole show. She's like stone cold, like very much like you know, like dragon lady, very like I don't know, yeah. like very uh, what's that, that movie with. Uh, Devil Wears Prada. Devil Very, like, looks like, you know. And so she's sitting there, and I look over, and it's just, like, just a barrage of tears from her. And then I'm looking over, you know, at my ex, crying, and I'm looking at myself, and I'm like, what is this happening? And just, like, this slow stream of, like, just this one, like, kind of Oscar-winning tear <laughs> <laughs> falls down my face. Um, but there was something so, what I loved about it, because I've seen the show in different incarnations. I saw it uh, with Christine Applegate years ago and there was something about this moment of just kind of like just this woman who just wants to be loved and accepted for who she is and the and kind of like that opening up of this moment in me of like you know of my my own identity of like love and what that is um and um another moment uh kind of in that love uh theme is um a strange loop um and it's periodically uh, in the in the song moment, um, you, you know he's celebrating his twenty sixth birthday, and his mother and he receives a voicemail from his mother, 
and it's just this kind of like this loving like I just wanted to call to say that I love you happy birthday um, and then it ends with hell is real and you're gonna go to hell because you're gay <laughs> you know? and just kind of like the dichotomy of that it's just it was really brilliant and I feel it's very understated and uh, people talk about all the other songs like Tyler Perry like you know um, the uh, rights of real life etc 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 but that number in particular I feel like it gets kind of pushed aside because there are other bops and other numbers but it's a really powerful moment that whole through line in that show is really yeah. startling and great and moving so I had one but you actually reminded me Sutton Foster this isn't a moment for me musical but it's a musical theater moment in a TV show anyone here see Bunheads yeah. <laughs> there's this Bunhead. moment where um, so it's about a, girls who are aspiring dancers and their teacher who's kind of like a has-been given up on her life dancer who's teaching them played by Sutton Foster played by yeah. Sutton Foster and um, she one of the girls is uh, auditioning for uh, Bells Are Ringing, which is not a show I've seen. And she's singing the song... Um, Perfect Relationship. Perfect Relationship. And, <laughs> and this girl is, like, practicing her audition for her teacher. And she's fine. <laughs> and then Sutton Foster is like, no, you should do it this way. And she gets up and she starts singing. But then it's like... All of a sudden, she feels like she's auditioning for her student, and mm -hmm. and it's this really magical moment of like, you know, I'm a teacher, but I also had my own dream, and and um, by the end of the season, she's actually going on auditions again, and it's this amazing transition. Uh, highly, highly recommend the one season of the show that exists. <laughs> from Come From Away, which is definitely my favorite new musical something's missing at the end and um looking back at my own experience of 9-11 um when I was listening to that song I realized that one of the things that really sticks in my head is going home for Rosh Hashanah the next week and interacting with all these people who had no you know uh, back in Massachusetts who had no idea what I'd been through and um it's very specific to the 9-11 experience but it's also anyone who goes through grief there's that first week where you're in the grief and dealing with it, and then there's a week later when you go back to your real life. And um, uh, Come From Away in that song really captures it. I will move things along, but just add that going back to what you were talking about the moment before Telephone Wire, but I feel like Telephone Wire. If I were going to pick something for Why Is This So Good section myself, I would probably do Telephone Wire because I just love that song. Is brings me to a complex emotional state. Can I add one more moment? Yeah, yeah. That, like, really, I'm just thinking about it now. It's the Scottsboro Boys. Oh my my God. favorite songwriting team. Um, you know, Kenner and Ed. And it was uh, the moment where they addressed the, um, the proclamator, that's that's his name? The, the, the interlocutor. 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 And so he, they're, they're stopped, and they take off the, uh, the blackface. Oh, God. And, um, and then they kind of, like, exit the stage. And then you see this woman who's been sitting there the whole yeah. show, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and you're like, "What is like? Why? Like, why is she here the whole time?" And then you, and then you like, "Oh, that's Rose of Art." Like, you just never know. And it's it, every time it gets me. Well, every time. Into the show. Let's use that to segue into um, just our own episodes and how we felt uh, if they were received um, by people. If you got any feedback. Um, from people about your episodes, um, and uh, 
and also what you've enjoyed so far, uh, what you've enjoyed on season two, what, what episodes you found interesting. Um, after I did my, uh, my Fair Lady episode, um, somebody I know who is a fellow musical theater writer who I really respect and who similarly, you know, had told me he'd reread the libretto recently and was similarly appalled and was, was like so much more abusive and horrible than he remembered. Um, so he was kind of dreading seeing it. He already bought tickets. He said, he saw it with Laura Benanti, who I didn't see in the role and was surprised at how much he loved it because he talked about, and I believe this, that she made it so that there's no way Eliza's a victim in the show. Um, and I, and again, I have no trouble believing that, but I guess for me at the end of the day, that means my fair lady and it being palatable or not depends on Eliza's reactions. And so it's, becomes a show about how like a victim reacts to her abuser and this particular production seemed to be saying like hey women don't put up with sexism which like great cool um and that's progressive by 1950s standards but I kind of think what we need more of is and what we don't really see much are shows that say hey men don't be sexist um and it's not that I expected it's not that I expected my first lady to like do that. Like I know where we are, um, and I know what show I'm I'm seeing, but I I think that's why I was dissatisfied with this particular production, um, because it still made it about how like like the the big feminist ending was like women decided a woman decided she had worth, which in for me in like this day and age is honestly slightly passe and not where we are kind of as a society. Thankfully anymore at least in terms of the kind of theater we're doing because I think those stories were important at a certain time and belong but I feel like just having women reject sexism I've seen that and in the 1913 play that also happened so I guess taking a show from the 1950s giving it a 1913 ending and calling that modern I I have a I still have an issue with even if you cast the most like awesome amazing actress because I it's to me that's still slightly passe and I just I again not expecting my fair lady to do this but I I still contend that I, I wish there were more shows that weren't about how women react to sexism as like kind of this unstoppable force that just exists in the world but showing like men realizing their complicity in it and uh learning and growing from that which my fair lady certainly does not do in my opinion you didn't feel that he was the way uh Harry Haddon Payton played Higgins at the end he wasn't destroyed completely by his losing her and his what he did he did I don't know Re, in previous productions in the movie they're very he's very blase about it and I feel that he was more emotional and he was I I, 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 I hear you but I guess to me him expressing emotion at being sad that the consequences of his own actions yeah, led to her leaving mm. isn't the same as growth no that's true you know yeah. what I mean so it's like it's kind of it's a little bit like okay, you're sad because the, like, just mm. consequences for you sucking occurred. Mm. So, like, that's a little hard for me to get behind because, like, while it is better, like... It's the best I, they can do. It, no, exactly. Yeah. It's, the be- it's kind of the best yeah. they can do, but yeah. I guess that's why... Because my thing isn't that, like, My Fair Lady is, like, the worst musical ever yeah. or that I'm expecting it to be a feminist mm-hmm. masterpiece. It's that people kind of touted this particular production as one that fixed those problems. Mm. And that is that is what I take umbrage yeah. with because I'm like, no, I, I think we're... <laughs> well, the, the press here. is always going to, you know, right. say things well, they don't, I mean, that yeah. aren't true. I guess the question is... Can you fix things? <laughs> it depends what they are. And, and, I mean, my question is, if this hadn't been touted as a feminist production, like, would you have been more satisfied with that? 
I... I think I would have been more satisfied if it was just like, this is a period piece, we're leaving it alone. Because they changed the ending. And yeah. the fact that they acted like that made it, an you know, an empowered ending. You know, like, when I just don't really feel like it fixes any of those issues. To me, that's the issue, as opposed to being like, this is a period piece. It was written at a different time with different sensibilities. Let's view it in its original form, understanding that. To me, that shows that you have an awareness that just like having her decide that she's not going to end up with him doesn't make it, doesn't fix it. You know, um, it shows like a lack of, I think, understanding of the complex, the complexity of the issues in that show. To be like, oh, the problem is that she stays at the end. It's like, oh no, you, there's so much more under that 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 you're not even touching. I think that that's that's such a really good point. I mean, what I find <clears throat> is that. With these classic shows, the ones that have really survived in the way that they have, often the books are, are very, very, very strong and a lot more complex than people give them credit for. Um, and this is not necessarily about that My Fair Lady, but I feel like diving further into that complexity and just simply letting a show be what it is with the strength of the characters is actually often a lot more interesting, even if it's not ascribing to 2019 levels of, you know, like like Guys and Dolls is the one that jumps to mind, right. where on the surface that might seem like something that, I, I mean, it's two women who end up in love stories. It's like there's a lot that obviously would not be necessarily right today, but if you look at those relationships. They're kind of great women. They're great women. And, but, it, but it's also what, what, I, what surprised me so much when I was teaching that show is the Sarah Sky relationship could so easily, I think if you just think about it on the surface, it's like gangster playboy and like innocent sort of prude like lady. prude lady. <laughs> but when you dive into it, it's so much more complex than that, that he like is putting on this kind of facade, but he actually has this real like romantics heart that, that comes out a little bit. And she's got this adventurer's thing. She's ta ta always talking about travel. And like there are these interesting things that make them a pair in a, in a human way, much more than like, I'm, I'm a playboy and I'm gonna For take sure. you but down it and it's like, like, ooh, I'm attracted to your naughtiness, you know? And like, mm -hmm. that makes it a good relationship, not just mm -hmm. this kind of like, surface reading of it. Right. Like, so dive in there and you've got a really interesting story. Right, and if you try to like, change one thing in that to bring it into like, right. quote, 2019 wokeness, unquote, <laughs> no, then like, you're just the whole thing falls apart. Yeah, yeah, you're putting a weird band-aid on it. And I think that's, that would be my review yeah. for this production of My Fair Lady, was yeah. weird band-aid. <laughs> Whereas I would have rather just like, like let me see that yeah. wound, Go you know, messy. like, let me see it in its original state. Because yeah. I think tr pretending like you fixed it really just highlighted all the issues that were still there. See, I, I mean, you can also call it, you know, woman who's got her life together and guy who's just a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I felt at the end. Oh, I was talking about guys and dolls, but it also works for yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we have um, some questions from our listeners that have come up recently and over the course of the year. So let's turn to those. Um, let's see. Well, I guess there is a My Fair Lady question, but since we were just talking about that, we'll go back. So let's start with the first one, which is about an episode uh, that Orion did. She's not here, but we can kind of address this if we can. Her episode was on the Bach and Harnick musicals, Fiddler on the Roof and the Rothschilds. 
So this is from uh, listener Deb Adler Poppel, and she wrote, I enjoyed this episode as Harnick and Fiddler are my heart favorites. A couple of thoughts. I believe the young woman in the Rothschilds was actually dropped in the latest version, which I think was a, a production they did at, at the York, York which yeah. was a shortened version of the show. Um, Harnick and book writer Sherman Yellen both feel the show is stronger and more focused without her. I agree. As um, And then, as, as a part two to the question comment, as for what shows would pick up the Jewish experience where Fiddler left off, Ragtime, and especially Rags, live in that space. Um, thanks for the podcast. Thanks for the podcast, is the <laughs> last line. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the Rothschilds. Uh, I know that this new version is supposed to be the authoritative version, but in my opinion, it is such a huge, epic show. It, it When I saw it at the York, it, it just did <laughs> not have the same power and emotion that the original Broadway production must have had. And, and from all accounts, speaking with friends of mine who've seen it, it did have. Um, it just, it, it's not meant to be a seven-actor chamber musical. Um, it's, it's a show that spans decades and is about the rise of empires, and it needs a huge orchestra, it needs a huge cast. And honestly, cutting the, uh, talking about putting a, a Band-Aid on a show, cutting the, the uh, love interest in the second act, is, it's such a, it's, I wouldn't even say it's a flaw in the original. It just is not something that is maybe necessary for sure, but it didn't hurt the show. Like it's such a, it's about five minutes of stage time. So it's like, it, that's, that's, the, that's the big change we're making. <laughs> but um, I do love the Rothschilds. I think that it's a hugely underappreciated show and it's one of, in my opinion, the greatest overtures of all time. So everybody should go listen to the overture. It, I, I've heard the same thing you've said. I have nothing, I didn't see it, I have nothing to add, but I've heard. Very similar complaints. People who saw the original and too small. Um, I mean, I did. This was basically the topic of my podcast. But if you want a three-minute, uh, <laughs> I would say um, just to reiterate what I said, which is that um, I think Falsettos is the definitive musical about Jews since, you know. <laughs> And uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend should also be checked out by most. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does, uh, talking about the scope, one thing we mentioned on the that podcast episode was how it's kind of, Fiddler and the Rothschilds are both like looking at certain aspects in Jewish history and then what would be other, as, other like times in Jewish histories that, history that musicals can kind of pop in on and, you know, be like this era, this this event in this time period for the history of Jews, um, is is what that second uh, comment is about, and I feel like uh, falsettos could be a good also. Um, she mentions ragtime and rags, but yeah, I I feel like falsettos we could add that in there as well, and crazy ex-girlfriend. <laughs> I also feel like we could add Carolina and Change in there. Because mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah. I feel like people forget about that one a lot. And I think something I that... <laughs> I'm sure you did not. I know you did. Um, because also it's just... It's interesting. Because I feel like with a lot of like, like... I am Jewish. A lot of Jewish theater is about like Jews dealing with their own oppression. Which like that's a fair thing to write about. Like obviously for sure. But there's also the other side of it where like 
Jews benefit from white privilege. And that's like a harder thing to say because also some things go too far and it's like Jews are 100% white and face no oppression. I'm like, yes, physically, okay, Jews still face oppression. But, you know, there are things like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like that I feel like go too far and act like Jews are just n- not a marginalized group at all. And it's like, no, these things exist on a spectrum, friends. Like, yeah. let's explore that. And I feel like Caroline or Change really does where it's like, um, they're pri- they are privileged Jews. They are the representation of whiteness in this show. And I think that's something that we don't see enough of that is real. Definitely, definitely add Caroline or Change to my list of two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do want to read what you had written because I, uh, or maybe you, you read what you wrote. Okay. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> so um, I guess this was in response to, we to did yours. Someone in a tree is what for the why is this so yes, good yes, section? Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. I mean, why is it so good? Because it's the best song. <laughs> <laughs> um, In talking about someone in a tree, there is another very urgent aspect to me, which is that the song demands very specific stage directions. I find that to be a fascinating thing in songwriting. Uh, And I think there was some discussion and you were saying, well, it doesn't actually say that. And I said, but the exact moment when the boy climbs the tree, it's not explicitly stated in the lyric, but it's very explicit in the orchestration. Uh, the arrival of the boy and climbing is met with a crescendo and tremolo in the strings where it only makes sense if he is climbing the tree at that moment. There is a stage direction. I did check the score last night. We didn't have the score in, in front yeah. of us. We uh, just had the I mean, I know there's this, but also <coughs> like, not just the stage direction like that is a note in the thing, but mm-hmm. also that it's just part of the song. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great dramatic moment. It's a play in itself in seven minutes. I'm gonna say this. Um, I'm not sure if I'm a fan of Somewhere in a Tree. Somewhere in a Tree. Um, and I think it's a show, I think lyrically, like the orchestra, like in terms of orchestration, yes, it's pretty brilliant. But in terms of like lyrically, like on the page, it's not a great song. <laughs> I would say that. It doesn't live on the page. It doesn't live on the page. No, no, of course, of course. I'm saying that, like, I look at it, like, lyrically, and I look at it, like, musically, and then I look at it, like, through, like, what is it accomplishing in terms of arrangement and orchestration. On the page, like, if you were just, like, to audition with it, no one would audition with no. someone in a tree. <laughs> but if you were, like, to do it in concert, it's just uh, something out of context. It gets so, uh, particularly to the show and to that moment, that I feel like it's just not a good song. Like just what it for what it is, I think that like like lyrically, I think there are other songs that just feel that like it, it accomplishes a lot more. I feel like it's a, it's a it's a song that like would not, if it wasn't for staging, it wouldn't have the power. That's just good. I'm gonna leave I, it there. I'm gonna just put it out there. I, I disagree. Obviously, I think it's about. You 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 you're more articulate about it. About was about it's about forward motion and all that you said something really interesting i can't remember what it was but it was really you have some really articulate thoughts on that well I, I i can't right now well i think uh when i what i probably said which is how i feel about that song which is what i probably said on the episode you can go back and double check but um that i feel like there are three um like categories or buckets of how we experience things, emotion, um, uh, like we, so something is emotional, something is theatrical, and something is intellectual. Mm-hmm. And like 
a lot of songs deal on either like intellectual or emotion or theatrical like but that's what that song does I think this is how I worded it was that it um, it takes something intellectual like this intellectual idea about history and how history works and it makes it not only theatrical but emotional and I just find that so insane <laughs> like just so brilliant that I like but it depends like do you feel that emotion I don't know I do some people probably I mean, don't no one's gonna do it in concert I mean it's, it's not a it's not losing my mind it's not you know it's being alive so it doesn't work out of context none of the songs do <laughs> but um yeah. but uh so I, I understand that but the rest of your argument, I have to disagree I, with. I, I think one thing that's kind of funny is because uh, we were talking off mic earlier about Past and Strange, mm -hmm. and to me, it seems like somewhere in a, someone in a tree is a direct antecedent of Keys. One of the first time I saw the show, I was like, "Oh!" And and what is I think so brilliant about Past and Strange and and Keys in particular is that I. I, ho I hope I don't offend Stu if he listens to this podcast. It's very clear he's never seen Pacific Overtures. He doesn't know that that show. He doesn't know this the score. Um, and he came to that same sort of um, place of creation where he could make a song that also like was about this tiny moment um, that a bunch of a bunch of people saw from different points of view, and it meant so much. And it meant so little at the same time, and it was so moving. I, I mean, I Keys was the moment in Passing Strange, one of the moments where I was like, "This is a brilliant show," because it, it does a lot of the same things that someone in a tree does, but does it just differently enough to where you know that it's, it's not a ripoff. You know, it's a brand new creation in the same vein of that song. I don't know. There's something about that particular song where I just felt like I have to see it on stage. It doesn't live for me. It's very long. It, uh, it, it, uh, it is intellectual, but I never, I never got the emotion. And uh -huh. it's something that I can feel it's very theatrical. And I feel like I get like the history, I get all, but like it's something that like for me, reading the book of, uh, of Pacific Overtures versus like looking at the lyric as it stands, it's a uh -huh. book thing. Uh -huh. I think it's a powerful, I think the book in itself uh, is very brilliant in terms of like getting you to see what they're trying to accomplish on stage, but I feel like if you were looking at the lyric itself, as it were, it like it just it doesn't register. Have you never seen the show? It's it's I I have, I have not seen the okay, show. You know, I've, a, I've read the book. I've, you know, I'm, I'm when you have a spare two and a half hours, you know, <laughs> go on YouTube talk. and find the original. Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah it's all on YouTube. Yeah. But I will say also, I mean, I think Sondheim, maybe more than anyone that I can think of has such a continuum in terms of the songs that he has written from the songs that are like mm -hmm. losing my mind which feel much more like a standalone beautiful melody thing and on to those very kind of like messy book songs that aren't necessarily something you want to like listen to as you're going around yeah. but it's what it's achieving dramatically is so key and the music is being used in a slightly different way. And I would say that probably someone in a tree lives a little bit in that world, like a little bit of the Ballad of Booth, not to talk about the songs. But you know, like, or even I, what I will use epiphany when I have, when I sit people down and don't believe that musicals are good. And I sit yeah. down and I'm like, look at what this achieves in three minutes for illustrating a mental state. But it's like, 
Epiphany is an amazing theatrical. This is Epiphany from Sweeney Todd, yeah. in case people aren't clear what I'm talking about. Um, I mean, that is an astounding dramatical exercise. You see the the elements of someone's breakdown, the, the pieces of his psyche that are fissuring apart and coming back together into a whole that's astounding in three minutes. Is that something that I necessarily want to like listen to I, well, and I in, an, I, in a kind of musical way? I, not necessarily. It's I not quite the same I category. I get character. I get place. I get... Um, you know, I, I, I get like the poetry, I get all of that. Mm -hmm. I feel like somewhere in a tree is so like, it, there's something about the lyrics that it's just so like, it's, it's, there's a lot of repetition. Mm -hmm. You're not getting a lot of information. Not really. Like, I think all of the things that you get are that happen in a book. It's not, you're not getting a lot of, mm -hmm. uh, it could happen anywhere. You know? And all that with a very Philip Glassy score. It's also interesting to me that someone in a tree is three characters that we don't know, never really meet, are standing in as kind of more symbolic figures of different mm -hmm. things. And I, I see what you mean about there's a sort of like, not simplicity in the lyrics, but there's like a lack of depth in the characterization than there is in so many other Sondheim. Yeah. And also I will say that Somewhere in a Tree and also Pacific Overtures in general deals with archetypes. Like it's telling yeah. a story about how imperialism happens. Mm -hmm. yes. And you know, like no, there are very sure. few characters we follow through the whole thing. And even then it's done more episodically. Like every, pretty much everything is representing, it's a metaphor. Everything's a metaphor in that show. So if you're on board for that, you're gonna like it. But if like, it's totally valid to be like, I'm not getting a lot of specificity about this character here as opposed to like a Sweeney Todd or yeah. some of his other works because it's, it's doing something different, but I totally respect and understand yeah, why you'd be like, oh, I don't feel that the same way because they are archetypes. A lot like, of that's the songs fair. are scrapbook songs. Like, you know, Chrysanthemum Tea is, you never see the show done really. Well, I guess you do. But um, the, the Four Black Dragons, it's, it's an event in the show, but they're just random street people talking about their experience with the ship coming in. They're not, you know, it's not an emotional like, oh, I'm going to follow this guy all evening. But it's really weird because I, that to me, that makes sense. Like I, I oh, okay. Because I get a lot of That's character and I get a lot of, I get like yeah. perspective and I get different POVs. Uh -huh. okay. Someone in the trade to me is just like on the page. I'm like, well, what yeah. is happening? It's cerebral. It's yeah. also not about the people who are telling it. We don't know them. We don't know anything about them other than their experience of this event. And it's not about them. It's about this thing that's happening. No, I mean, it's intellectual. It is. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, just a little aside about someone in the tree. Your comment, uh, Philip Glass, made me think of it. Apparently, Steve Reich loved Pacific Overtures and that song in particular yeah. because musically and lyrically, it operated. It operates in the way that a lot of his music does. These very simple ideas that repeat and repeat and repeat, but evolve very slowly over time until it builds up into this bigger picture. And, so. and, and I think that one thing that we we probably should mention is that a lot of these lyrics are based on. The, the simplicity, if you want to use that word, of Japanese poetry. Mm -hmm. Like, he, yeah, he's yeah. very specifically trying to evoke doing a lot with very little. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, especially in the first half of that show, like, someone in a tree and um, there is no other way. You, you got the poems, same. Poems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Poems, yeah. Poems, yeah. yeah. Um, I yeah, you, I mean, you're not going to get anything about character from something like poems. Other, th other than what you can infer. If you just read the lyrics yeah, without... Your poems. Yeah, yeah, you would not get anything about character. Uh, let's talk about cats. We have a question. <laughs> yes. We have a question from Don Sanborn, who is uh, one of our listeners. 
And this is about our most recent episode um, about Cass. He says, I'm glad you did that episode. I think if a mistake was made at the time, it was in labeling. Calling it a musical may have set up expectations it couldn't reach. Quite obviously, it's not Fiddler or Evita. But if it had been called a review or extravaganza, perhaps it would have been greeted with less condescension. There have been plenty of reviews in Cirque du Soleil shows with less plot. It transports the audience to an engaging world, and the whimsy of the opening number, especially playing with accents on different syllables, lets the audience know what type of show it is. Um, but in the in the episode, it was I think I brought up that uh, maybe if it were like a downtown show, but obviously people have embraced it for what it is because it does did very well. Yes. I have many thoughts. On that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I actually worked on Cats for over a year. I did a, wow. a yeah, I was a company manager on a tour, uh, an Australian tour that went around Asia, various oh. countries in Asia. Hmm. Um, so I had to watch Cats a lot, and I. Uh, now know a lot more about cats than I ever thought or wanted to know. Um, I always heard that the original plan for cats was that uh, you would go on different nights and you would see different cats. Mm. That it would be sort of, that part of the reason it's so episodic, and it's so episodic, hilariously so, one of my favorite moments in that show is when, you know, Gus, the theater cat who's so old, and he doesn't even finish his his song, it's, it just kind of trails off with like a mournful oboe, and then it literally goes as he's leaving, and then it goes skimble, literally right into like, oh look, here's a, yay, the railroad cat, and you're always like, what? But that that was the idea, that it was actually going to be structurally very groundbreaking, and that you would, it would just be a different collection, and so you would kind of go and see, and I, I'm sorry that didn't happen because I think if that were true, then the creators had an idea for it being sort of a different thing than it ended up being. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think it doesn't really matter how you market cats. I think cats would always be the subject of great love and great derision. I think it's um, it is 100% what it is, and I think a lot of what it is that makes it work is honestly the. I think if it hadn't been that original production, it would not have succeeded. But the fact that there's so much interaction with those cats, that they're in the audience, that when you see kids reacting to those cats, that's when yeah. I was like, yeah. this is why this show is a huge hit. Mm. It's, it allows you to, uh, it allows you to break the fourth wall in a way that doesn't make you uncomfortable. It's, it's, a, it's almost a 1930s show with like oh. really catchy it's songs kind of and fantastic yeah. dancing and like, what's not to like? Well, the interesting <laughs> thing about, I think, actually, Andrew Lloyd Webber in general, and I think you really see it in Cats, is that he wants to write rock songs. He's yeah. not trying to be a musical theater composer in the, you know, in uh, following, like, the legacy of Oscar Hammerstein to Stephen Sondheim to whoever, writing in that kind of way. I mean, really, a show like Cats, it's a concept album. It's yeah. a concept album on stage, yeah, yeah. and I think... When you know when you can embrace that mindset, you can open up some really cool possibilities. I want to go back and listen to Marcus's uh, rock, rock musical episodes again because I don't that. Cats. Well, you know, <laughs> and, it's not, and it's not a Cats isn't exactly a There's rock no musical, it's, it's but I mean, yeah. rock music and again concept albums and yeah. like an album on stage kind of a mindset that doesn't follow again the sort of what we think of as traditional musical theater structure. Uh, I don't know. I you you open up some really interesting possibilities and it's also often met with scorn and condescension and what is this but 
I don't know. I think it can yeah, be fun. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I think for me, the thing that's always been kind of just baffling about Cats, and I used to love listening to the album, by the way. I like It's a, good it's a great album. It's a good score. <laughs> well, and the Broadway cast yeah. is insane. Like, yeah, no, it's so cast. good. So good. I mean, obviously, it, it, there's a reason it's a hit. But seeing the show, it's it's like suddenly they add in this like supernatural, we're all... Yeah we're choosing one cat to like ascend to another dimension thing whereas in but for me as an audience member but for me as an audience member it's not that it's weird i love weird i write the weirdest stuff i love seeing the weirdest stuff weird love it it's that i don't know what's expected of me as an audience member i'm like am i kind of relaxing and just being like i'm gonna meet different cats or is it like oh there's a plot that i'm following and they're all pursuing a goal and for me that it doesn't quite live in either of those worlds other people might love it and justifiably so but for me i'm just like wait am i supposed to be invested or am i just enjoying it mm-hmm. and i like and it i start getting into my own head about like is this a story or isn't it and i right. feel like it never quite answers that question and then i it's hard for me to engage like i actually enjoy listening to the album more than seeing it presented in its full form and it might be one of the few musicals that i feel that way about but isn't that like most musicals in the 80s <laughs> like <laughs> especially like rock musicals but like the show that like i like to compare cats to and i had to make sure i got the dates right just a moment ago but like i think of song and dance mm-hmm. like the structure of that you know the song the dance i think it, this the same show but it's it's kind of mixed up in this kind of gumbo and that's cats that's all I want to say. Well, it's so interesting because they have very kind of cleverly worked that book, so there's just enough of a through line to pull you through with all those weird kind of presentations. Um, again, I could tighten it up for them if anybody asked. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Um, but when we were, when I was on that tour, there was when we were in I think we were in Taiwan. I think we were in a I, yeah, I think it was Taiwan. Um, and a bunch of the company had gone to this jade market, and there had been a woman who was super helpful to us, so we gave her tickets to the show to come see the show. And afterwards, she called me and said, could you come back to the jade market? And I said, certainly. You know. And she had a gifts for everybody in the cast, but she was weeping. And she said to me, I loved that show so much. And I was like, that's great. And she said, it, it's about how your family is the family you make, not the family you're born with. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I mean, it was really a moment for me because I had kind of dismissed Cats as this kind of stupid cat show. And I honestly had never even considered that there could be that kind of emotional depth for someone in seeing it. But this woman, had it, it had really struck that chord with her because she was seeing this group of Jellicle Cats that was made up of you know, all these different, so so I just leave that there, that like there's something about the, the fact that it's this kind of very simple story that actually I think allows people to see things in it they might not otherwise. Is it is it a little bit slut shamey that the one that they kick out is yes, like yes, yeah. the glamour cat? Are, are there other problems? What happens to the very old cat that doesn't get to die? Apparently, like hmm. he's got to wait till next year. He's got to wait till next. I mean, I have a lot of follow up questions with that plot, but I will say that there's something about that that, I, that works. I, I will say, and it's interesting because for me, and I think that this shows how cats can speak to everybody in different ways. If if I were directing a production of Cats the image that I would have in my mind is like act one of Parsifal. Like to me, Cats is all about spirituality and and the experience of communion. Um, 
and I'm not being ironic when I say that. Like I, I, I literally like that's what I think is 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 beautiful. They open the show with that kind of that that um that faux Latin about the everlasting cat, and then that's what happens at the end of Grisabella ascending to the heavy side layer, and it's like all about how we yearn for more than we have in this material world and and how how we constantly grasp for something that's just beyond us and the way that we participate in that here in this world is by these religious ceremonies and and it brings meaning to our life uh, I, anyway, that's that's my thoughts about that. That is the deepest. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> wow. We'll but see if that comes through in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, the funny thing is, it's like there is a whole community of people, like uh, people having sort of intense analysis of cats is, is not rare. There's a whole community of fans. I remember one of the actors telling me that the backstory for, because Demeter, who's very, one of the girl cats who's very jumpy yes. um, and very scared of macavity, and one of the actors in the show said, you know, well, you know why Demeter is so jumpy around macavity? And I was like, no. Yeah. <laughs> why? She's a cat. <laughs> because, because she was raped by macavity. And I was like, what? There's a whole backstory that people have written for these characters, including Rough Rape, which are like, let's just like, that whole wow. thing is like, I don't even want to go there. How bizarre that is, but but yeah, there's this whole like people. It's kind of this weird Rorschach inkblot thing where people can see all these different things in it. And of course, Lord Andy's thought on the subject: it's about cats. It's about cats. <laughs> so, and I think Nick, you suggested that we should. Oh, we should talk about Hal Prince because he's talk about Hal Prince. He's gone. Um, who uh, passed away on July 31st yes, of this yeah. year. Yeah. Um, I didn't. I thought he lived to 108. If Mr. Abbott, that's what I told his widow. I said, if he lived to 100, and Abbott lived to 107, he lived to 108. It was a surprise. Um, I've known him from a distance for about 10 years. When I was a, a senior in high school, <coughs> excuse me, um, I wrote him a fan letter and thought I'd get like a nice letter back. And he invited me to his office. Not uncommon. Um, he did that to a lot of people, and we'd been in touch. And for until he died for ten years, and he was just you know he was a a wonderful director, a wonderful producer. I mean, you're not going to get that kind of career ever again, that kind of producer ever again, but a gentleman. And I think that that says a lot. I mean, I, I, I there aren't people with that enthusiasm, that willingness to. There are, but not as many as I'd like. And uh, I, I'll. Uh, I'll miss knowing he's around. I don't know how active his career would have been. I, I'm sure it possibly would have, but and also go to the New York Public Library exhibit at the uh, at Lincoln Center. Mm -hmm. It's thrilling. It's just everything's there and the Boris Aronson models and all that. So uh, I think uh, what a contribution. I think we wouldn't be sitting here really discussing the the depth of musical theater without Hal Prince. So. Mm -hmm. I think something you said resonated with me because I wish I'd had the thought to write him a fan letter um, because I hear so many stories about like, oh, I wrote him a fan letter and he invited me to his office. And it's not that it's like, oh man, that I could have met Hal Prince, which obviously would have been awesome, but just that he was so successful and so generous 
and that there it wasn't beneath him to talk to anybody who loved the craft that he was in his whole life and i think that's just such a wonderful model for who like if i ever became that successful who i want to be and who i also want like just never always having the time and the generosity to engage with everybody about this art form that we all really love so much and i I think think it stimulated him Really no, and good, I, yeah. and, but I just I love yes. that he yes. wasn't. Yeah. He was never too big to do that. Yes. Like, that, yeah. and I, I love that. I never him. met him personally, but from every story I've heard from everyone who did, that's always what I'd heard is that they said whether you are a Broadway veteran with Tony Awards under your belt or you're a kid who just moved here and just getting started, mm-hmm. he would talk to you like an absolute equal. Like he was genuinely interested and invested in what you wanted to do. And I mean, I know somebody. I mean, as somebody who is. You know, starting to become more established, but especially like when I was just starting out, just finding those people who would just talk to you like that just made a world of difference. In my first year at um, the Graduate Musical Theater Writing Program at NYU, it was like in the first month, we he was speaking at the New York Public Library in that theater, the Performing Arts Library in that theater they have. So we a bunch of us went, and at one point he was talking, and he just glanced at his watch, and he stopped, and he's like, oh. I just bored myself. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought it was the funniest thing I've ever seen. I guess his eyes just drifted to his watch as he was talking. I don't know, but I just thought it was a good line, you know. Um, Yeah, anyone else? Um, I just have a a little, I don't know, story, anything, whatever. But, like, there was um, this past summer... Uh, but, uh, right after, like around the time that he passed away, the, uh, I was doing a thing called Across the Crowded Room at uh, Lincoln Center. Yeah. Um, and the theme was to take uh, things that he's produced over his long, illustrious career and like make a short 20-minute musical adaptation of the piece. And I remember the amount of people who dropped out, myself included, <laughs> once he like, passed away, everyone just said, oh, well, there's no point. <laughs> and just, like, everyone just kind of said, just kind of fell into, like, this, like, malaise and this very, like, sad yeah. kind of, like, like, what's the point of writing? Um, and so it was a very, uh, from what I understand, it was a very small, very, like, turnout because the, the kind of the, um, the influence and just kind of, like, the, the cause uh, for, him, for us writing this, this piece, it just kind of, fell out um but i remember speak uh having him speak he spoke at nyu uh, when i was there when i was attending um and he was talking about his career and i just remember him talking to uh steven talking about steven sondheim and and meeting steven sondheim and just kind of like his how he approached uh like uh he he approached shows like you know west side story and his conversation with him I don't know, I just feel like the way, the candidness and how he talked about him. And this is like a young guy, just like, just, I just want to write musicals. I just want to write, and like, and his, I don't know, just like the way he, the way he spoke about just kind of like those, those first meetings with Sondheim. Anything else that you wanted to add and uh, say that you didn't get to say? Yeah. All right. Um, I'm just going to pick one from my last ones here about. Uh, current musical theater thing you're excited about. Uh, two nights ago, I saw Sing Street at New York Theater Workshop. Oh, I Apparently, it's a little divisive from what I hear. I loved it. Uh, I thought the cast is incredible. Um, it, the direction by Rebecca Teichman, who did Indecent, it's Ooh. just really wonderful. Uh, she has an incredible way of making this piece that's set in the 1980s feel 
so contemporary, so much of this cultural moment uh, about, you know, finding hope and joy in the face of hardship and battling toxic masculinity. Uh, you had mentioned earlier that we've seen so many shows about uh, women fighting against sexism as this sort of unstoppable force. And this isn't fighting against sexism specifically, um, but again, just toxic masculinity in all of its guises and this group of young men who say, who are looking at the generations before them and saying, here are all the ways that we have been failed. How can we step up and do better? Uh, and it's just, it's a bunch of guys singing songs and caring about each other. And I was like, hell yes. So <laughs> it's really great. Go and check it out. Oh, cool. sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, I'm going to jump in on that one too, because uh, the thing that I'm really excited for in the coming year um, is The Suffragists, which oh, is Shane yeah. and Taub's piece about the, the, um, the suffragists. Um, <laughs> as indicated by its title, but um, I was lucky enough to see a reading of this, and uh, I just, it, when we were having that conversation, I I have such a, I find, I have an irritation with this moment we're in right now, because I feel like I've gone to a lot of shows, speaking of a weird band-aid, where um, th there are these, like, empowered women bots who are like <laughs> cannot be not strong for a tiny second because people like have somehow interpreted that having strong characters and strong women means that they have to literally be strong all the time looking at you king kong that was yeah. Yeah. there's no growth if you're strong from the very beginning and you keep saying it um <laughs> but um there's something just magical about the suffragists i mean first of all shana taub is so so brilliant and she's written this brilliant show but it's it's entirely a female cast and it's just about women it, in so many different characters and it, it's not about women I mean it's women fighting for their rights something they care about but it's not about women being strong and women can do anything and women can take the place of men it just it feels different to be in a room where it's a totally female team it's this story about women being complicated and, and messing up and working together and like I just was so happy to see this thing at, for the promise of it, for where it's gonna go, and, and I can't wait to see it on the stage, so I'm very happy about that, yeah. And I'm gonna piggyback kind of off of that, too. I'm excited to see Six, which is a show that uh, I yes. thought that I would not want to, like, because I'm not interested in, like, any of the, like, the King Henry's and the King, I'm just not interested in that. But um, what I love about it is that it incorporates French house, German house music, EDM, uh, it incorporates, um, rock and roll it's it's kind of it's taking kind of like music that like in many ways is kind of it's always kind of catching up to what's happening right now on radio it's not dubstep it's not like alternative r&b but it's music like from like 2009 2010 2011 and it's kind of bringing that into kind of the fold um and it's about the the six wives of king henry and i i, I think that's like I don't know, exciting to me, and these are bold women, they're telling their stories, they're living their truths, and they're kind of finding community in each other. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. Scene to Song will be going on a brief hiatus to prepare for season three, and will return in early 2020. In the meantime, you can write to scenetosong at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater or if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Follow us on Instagram at scene to song on Twitter at Scene2Song, and on Facebook at Scene2Song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. 
Thank you to everyone who has listened and Happy New Year. Thank you.